the horses are great. The horse is a terrific. It, you know, I tell people it's like the cheapest therapist you'll ever have because when you, you get on that horse, everything else goes out of your head. You know, it's, you know, when people talk about focus and about, you know, living in the moment, you better live in the moment or it's not very safe. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CMC Live. I'm your host, Ed Narkey. So on today's podcast, we're going to talk about early-stage drug development. What's the secret sauce? So you're an emerging biotech company, have just begun development of a compound or unlicensed product and received initial funding. Now the fun starts as you sort through what R&D has been done and start to prioritize the long list of ideas from investors, board members, scientific advisors, and your own team. If you're a virtual company, there's the added feature of coordinating a geographically dispersed web of CMOs, CROs, labs, and experts into a cohesive team. You'll need to decide which of the ongoing activities can be or should continue while trying to cope with coming up with a concise set of long or even short-term milestones and a plan and also a budget to go with it. As you dig in and get going, you realize that the company wants to keep spending to a minimum until certain preclinical or clinical milestones are met. So what would you like to get accomplished and what will be funded are definitely not the same thing. So how do you handle the product development? What drives the decision to do or to delay? What risks are associated? How do you mitigate those or lobby for support? When do you approach the regulatory agencies and how do you do it with the best package possible? How do you build and manage a realistic plan to balance funding resources and risk while maintaining flexibility to adapt to new data, funding changes, regulatory input, market forces, just to name a few. Today, we're chatting with Judy Magruder, live and virtual from out in Mountain View, California, early stage product development champion, horse owner, hopefully still an overall cool, very cool person that I met many years ago. Judy has a lot of experience with what we just went over here. And on this podcast, we plan to have a great discussion on companies in these situations. Welcome, Judy. Tell us more. Well, thanks for the interview. Happy to be here and talk about my favorite topic. Um, you know, where to start is, is a great question. I, I very often meet with early stage companies that either have just acquired a patent or, uh, you know, a scientist has had a breakthrough in his or her lab and they think, I, I want to bring this thing to market. What do I do? And so often not a lot of drug development experience and just trying to figure out, you know, where to go from there. And so I, I love those situations because I, it's kind of a clean slate. And I encourage these folks, whether it's the uh, company founders or initial uh, fund angel funding investors, just to think about what the product would be. You know, what are the various registration strategies? How do you get this product to market? What would it look like? Quote unquote label need to be. And encourage them to think there first and then back up and build a plan from there. When you look at a product like that and you start thinking about, okay, what are the market forces? What are this competition? You know, all the way from, you know, financing that you need, the science, the regulatory, think big picture first. And then all the, the minutia and the smaller, what I call, you know, the micro plans come later. And I think if, when companies take the time to do that up front and build a registration strategy, you know, what does the product need to look like when it hits the market? all the plans underneath become that much more valuable and, and realistic. Okay. So even though there's funding out there, there's limited funding, as we know, CMC, you know, sort of takes the backseat to the clinical part of the program. 
from what you mentioned here, what are you know the prioritization of some of the goals you know that lead to some of the decisions that that come about? Can you maybe talk about some of the steps to building you know a mo- the most useful plan based on limited resources, time involvement here, and you know satisfying your stakeholders? Absolutely. Well, I, I think once the team has spent the time thinking big picture, they need to think about what is that critical milestone they need typically for the next funding round. Because at the end of the day, it, you know, business drives so much of, of the science, fortunately and unfortunately. And so once that milestone is defined very often early on, it's the IND. You know, how do we get the IND filed as quickly as possible? Well, you know, then you break it down into the three major buckets. There's, you know, CMC, there's the clinical, and there's non-clinical. And, you know, I think of those as the major buckets and think, okay, what are the key things I need to focus on for each of those? And so early on, it's typically, you know, non-clinical and, you know, making sure you've got a safe product and uh, you do the appropriate efficacy and safety studies, but you need API to do that. And so, you know, CMC goes in the front, um, they start making some material and, you know, focus on how to make appropriate material for those early safety studies and how do you do that quickly, cheaply, and safely? And so you look at the risks, you know, what do you know about the compound? What do you know about the synthetic route, impurities, those kinds of things, and make sure that you design safety studies that address those risks. And so, you know, early on, it's a lot of interplay between the, you know, the, the toxicologist and safety folks and the science folks who understand, you know, how the molecule works in, in these non-clinical models. And then, you know, we need to make, make material and, and test it in safety studies. So those are the typical early stage uh, activities, but then clinical also has to kind of sit over on the side and say, make sure you're testing safety elements that will address how this product will be used in the market. You know, look at you know, any you know, non-clinical hits it might have in terms of safety signal, and I need to know that stuff up front as well. And so that's where the integrated project plan comes in, is that all the different components of, of how you develop a product need to be thought of from day one. Right, okay. So joining us again today, Brian Leo and Miranda as well. Brian, any questions? I'm one of the things I was thinking about when Judy mentioned that, you know, how do you stay on track? As as we know, you know, you 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 have a plan set out, you know, you have some financing, you make some decisions. It rarely just goes like that, right? There's always some things that come up, new information. So Judy or or maybe Brian, you can add here, you know, how do you stay on track? So, you know, when I work with folks, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, I love Gantt charts. Most people hate them. <laughs> I use them as tools to help do some scenario analysis. I almost never put them up in a meeting or in a grade. It's just, no, people's eyes glaze over. Um, but I use them to, to look at different scenarios. So when, when the team has done the initial work of the, the global strategic plan, if you will, kind of the big picture, um, then I break that down into different scenarios and say, okay, well, we could get to this milestone any number of different ways. And I use Gantt as a tool to create, okay, here's one scenario, here's another. In each of those scenarios, there's a critical path, you know, who's, who's the one holding the plan up, um, and there's different risks. And so we do those, you know, analyses of which risks can we stomach and which ones can't we. You pick a scenario, but those little micro plans underneath the big picture are never static. And so I encourage people to, you know, you're constantly looking at those micro plans, you're updating because there's new information all the time. Uh, You know, in this business, the one constant is change. And so that micro plan is never static. It's always changing. But the goal is really to keep that macro plan intact, that milestone that you've identified as valuable for the company. And the challenges in that each of those micro plans for the different disciplines, how do you keep your eye on that, that goal in the macro plan 
And, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to get to your goal and just don't change the dates. <laughs> Think of a different strategy or manage your risk a different way, but do not change that date. How do you manage? You have many different stakeholders and in smaller companies, those are really defined. Yes. Uh, some people are very passionate in, in the aspect that they represent and period. How do you have them buy into this holistic Gantt chart approach? Because oftentimes you'll have very defiant personalities. Like I said, it's passion. It's usually driven from passion. But how do you get that buy-in and work through those spots that make Gantt charts that see the entire project sometimes difficult to use? How do you manage that? Uh, Great question, because uh, people do get passionate about their discipline and say, you know, I need to do this animal study. We cannot proceed. It's not safe unless we get these data, you know, to move forward or or some CMC impurity study, you know, any, it, you know, pick your example, which is great because those are the people you really want on your team. I encourage people to step back. Okay, let's look at the big picture again. Let's remember that the company made a commitment to have an IND by this date and investors are really, you know, it's important for the company to move forward. Put that aside and say, okay, there's a bunch of different ways to get there. So if we really need to do this safety study, for example, that's going to take 10 weeks longer than we thought, what can we do to get material sooner so that we can, you know, condense the overall timeline? And let's look at CMC options that give us suitable material for that study sooner, realizing we have to do the other things to create material for, say, the GLP talk studies. But, you know, so there's, you remind people of how their piece fits into the bigger picture while not minimizing their concerns and saying, yeah, you know, I hear what you're saying. We need that safety study, but we also need to meet this milestone. Let's figure out how to do both. I think in preclinical, it's really important because things are in such a state of flux. Right. The later phase you get, it's it's somewhat black and white, the steps you go through to get to the next phase. But in preclinical, I think what you mentioned is, is really important, that creativity and flexibility of getting to the same endpoint. Yes. And, and that's where I think that visual aid of a Gantt, even for the non-believers of Gantt, um, they'll see the interdependencies, they'll see the linkages, and it helps them understand how their role is important to the end product. That's a good point. Exactly. Okay, so you have a team. You know, you're, you're talking about a small biotech company, for example, maybe licensing a molecule out of academia or licensing something from a larger pharma and getting some funding, kind of just hitting the ground running. Most of the time may not have a supply chain or a lot of data just to start on. So this team, you know, even more so today, virtual, you have external um, vendors, you know, their, their business models to make materials. They don't necessarily know what your goals are, you know, where you want to license your product out or how far you want to take the development. You have individuals, consultants, or some short staff covering a lot of different things, right? They may be virtually located as well, maybe in different time zones. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of an effective way to execute strategy? You know, you, you mentioned that uh, it's, it's always changing and that's probably part of the part and parcel for this. How do you execute the strategy shifts with this virtual team? Emerging biotechs, they're kind of known for that. Everything's pretty much outsourced. Things change, you know, redefining milestones. Can you maybe talk to some of your experiences with smaller early stage emerging companies, essentially one product in development when these type of things occur? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so things change all the time. And so whether you do a weekly meeting or a daily meeting or a sub-team, I just let people know, you know, number one, what the change is. Make sure every communication is the key because it's so multidisciplinary. All these different disciplines depend on each other that, it, you know, communicating change in, in, a, in a very succinct way is important. And so you can start off your team meeting and say, ah, 
you know, we got a safety signal. Uh, we need to look at the CMC route and get rid of, you know, a couple of impurities or figure out which caused the problem. Um, so let's shift gears. And so then everybody understands why we're shifting gears. And then you can say, okay, what can we do? Um, and typically I'll distill out, I, I won't present a Gantt chart. I use, you know, different graphics and say, okay, here's three boxes that connect, you know, and put a little line and show people the critical path. And then they can understand, you know, why we need to make a shift, um, what the new uh, ground rules are. Again, the end date, you hope to never change that unless you absolutely have to, but just make sure people understand what's moving underneath that. Um, and I find that once people understand why they need to make a change and why something new may be important as opposed to something else, they, they get on board. And then we focus on just that critical path. If there's five other things underneath it that we know right now looks like we have time to do, I don't even talk about it. It's like, let's just talk about the critical thing. All that other stuff will, you know, will happen underneath. I know you guys are professional. Let's just focus on the key thing today. Okay. You talked about Gantt charts and they're pretty well known in the industry. You know, everyone loves them, of course. And they're actually very useful if you apply them and practice well, right? Any other communication tools early stage companies can use to improve the chances of, um, you know, keeping to their strategy, being adept to change, meeting milestones? Yeah, I, I find that when companies go out, you know, looking for funding or talking to investors or talking to the market, um, obviously they have a deck, you know, there's the slide deck that you create. And within that slide deck, there are graphics that they use. And I actually like to use those with teams just so that teams can see how the company is communicating to the outside world. And those are typically much more simple. You know, they've got a couple of boxes or just dates. Sometimes it's not even a, a timeline graphic. It's just a table. And so I like to use those. Um, I use, you know, various PowerPoint, you know, formats. I've been known to use like five or six different formats with a team until I find out what works. Uh, because every team is different and people are visual, but they see things differently. And so I try out, you know, Excel graphics, PowerPoint graphics, you know, modified Gantt chart calendars, tables. There's so many different ways to communicate what's important, what's the critical path, what are the milestones, and, and what's important to focus on today. And so I play around with a lot of different, you know, oftentimes it's tables. Here's the task, here's dates. People can't look at graphics. They like those. So I try a lot of different things till I find out what works for a certain team. Right. Okay, and not to take you off the spot, Judy, but I have a question for Brian and Miranda now. So Brian and Miranda, you guys are speaking with a lot of um, early stage companies, you know, basically looking for supply chain and looking for a path forward and a strategy while at the same time looking for money, you know, partners and those things like that. So they're not necessarily focused on the CMC. Can you maybe share some of the questions that you get, you know, at that stage, you know, maybe, you know, folks that aren't necessarily background CMC or technical um, but they do have a flavor for the drug development process. What kind of questions maybe do you get early stage, you know, pre-IND going into IND companies? And perhaps, Judy, um, we could play a game here. Perhaps, Judy, you could be on the other side and sort of answer some of the questions based on some of, you know, some of the work that you... Sure. I would say the biggest, the biggest challenge is when the sponsor does or does not accept the fact that some development work may have to happen, that everything worked just fine on the bench. But when they move it to a CMO who caters to the small scale, um, preclinical, early phase clinical batches, there is a certain amount of development that needs to be done to make sure that process is transferable. But yet you have people on the sponsor side that just simply don't see that. They see it as an opportunity to have to spend more money. 
Now, we, we tell our clients that you don't have to have a perfectly characterized process. You don't. However, you do have to have a process that can be made the same way twice. So how do you manage that, Judy? It, you know, again, it, a lot of things are driven by the dollar, and, and you have to respect that, especially with smaller companies. But how do you manage that balance between essential development, particularly with methods, and understanding that big decisions are driven off of those methods. How do you manage those expectations when you transfer to a CMO? Uh, yeah, I've seen it go both ways, to be honest with you. So if if you're not around while the initial plan is being developed and that, that timing is not included in, in expectations, that's a tough spot. And I've been there and you, know, you go in and say exactly what you just posed, say, well, so before you make clinical material, you need to kind of know what you have, do a little development, make sure your methods adequately characterize the material. And you want to know you can make it twice because if you go to the clinic and you get great data, you want to be able to reproduce that stuff and use it again. And so explain it that way. And I've had, you know, head of a company say, you know what, that sounds great, but we're going. (laughs) We're going with what we have because I promised my investors I'd be in the clinic and I just don't have time. And that's a risk. And so all this is about managing risk. And and so they went ahead against of the CMC person and I'm the project manager and he's like, okay, thanks for your input, but no. <laughs> I've had other companies who have different experience or, or listen differently, who knows why, you know, understand and say they're not willing to take that risk of heading into the clinic without, you know, a little bit more ro- robust data set and confidence that they could repeat making that product. Um, so I've seen it go both ways and I think it comes down to the decision-making from a business perspective. You know, c- can they afford do they believe you <laughs> and afford that time slip? Um, so I've seen it go both ways and I don't think you can guarantee that approach will work. No. And, and I don't think that, you know, if you went the, the um, and you shorted certain development steps, it's not unrecoverable. I mean, you can go back, you can further develop, you can, you know, under change control, you can still move things along, but you're right. It, it's that risk. And, and we tell our clients in particular to pay attention to those methods and how they're qualified because, an inconsistent method can set you back in time and money like most folks wouldn't believe. So those are things that we really try to insist that there's some sort of concessions made for method development. You don't need a lot of material, but to, to qualify and better understand those methods, it's essential. That's a great point because I think methods are, it doesn't sound exciting, but that's one of the places where risks may not be worth taking. You know, And I think that's, you know, as a CMC expert, you know, when you go in and say, Here's how I assess the risks. I mean, that's incredibly valuable for these, you know, early stage companies because that's what they wouldn't necessarily know. But from a CMC perspective, there's some risks that may might be, you know, you could advise, well, you know, you can make that up later. But as some risks are pretty tough to make up later, and I think that's where the value yeah. comes in in providing the kind of advice that that you just described. Miranda, speaking of risks, you know, talking to some folks, investors um, looking for, you know, help with some of the programs. Anything that you've picked up, uh, early stage companies, just you know, just getting started, you know, the the prickly spots, what keeps them up at night, rumors that they heard, things you have to do. Has there any been any you know sort of consistent messaging or questions around certain risks? Uh, not necessarily specific questions. I've had a lot of folks come to us in the earlier stage and said you know, what do I have to do to make CMC work? And it's like, that's a loaded question. So um, at that point, you have to really step back and kind of educate them on, you know, how somebody can help them guide them through those processes. Because if that's their only question, they got a long road ahead of them. So um, 
a lot of the earlier stage companies that we uh, speak with, we kind of just try to guide them best practices, some resources that could help them and um, think about where they need to go from here. I'm not sure, Brian, have you heard any recent questions? No, I, I think that the one overarching theme though was something that Judy had touched on earlier, and you said it several times, Judy, in the beginning, is that there's more than one way to get there. And if I think early on in the preclinical, at least in our experience with some of our, our clients who are very strong personalities and they've, they've gotten the company that far, and you have to give credit where credit's due. I think it's explaining that we on the CMC side are not inflexible either. We need to be able to be creative to find the, the means to an end. And I think that's, if anything, from what I've listened to so far, it, it just validates the fact that there has to be more than one way to get there, especially in the early phase work. And if you can do that with some of these clients that Miranda, you and I have certainly spoken to, it shows in good faith, a willingness to work with them and, and understand why they're pushing something one way and what we can do about it. So I think to me, flexibility is, is the key here. That's right. Yeah. And actually, that's a great point you brought up, Judy, about risk. I mean, any any time we do anything here in this industry and make decisions, there's a risk involved. You know, there's no f- crystal ball. You know, we base a lot of our decisions based on our experiences and the mistakes that we made in the past. So, you know, we covered a couple things today, which was great. You know, how to stay on track, how to be flexible, you know, how often you, sh- you should pivot. Uh, in certain instances, why? And then also how to, you know, effectively communicate with teams, some of the tools, the Gantt charts. I guess overarching, you know, bottom line is communications. You know, if you have that, you know, usually you have a pretty good um, plan and you can execute. So I have two more questions. One of them is regulatory challenges, CMC regulatory challenges, early stage companies. You know, we have investors who may have done something with a larger budget or a larger company and they can sort of predict or tell you, you know, how things are going to work, but you know for sure, you know, based on the situation, it's not going to work like that. Can you give us like maybe an example or just a recent, you know, funny experience or maybe just not funny experience, but fun experience, you know, with, with a small merging group, maybe, you know, the success story part of it. Yeah. So sometimes you do get surprised on the upside on the regulatory piece, but believe it or not, <laughs> I worked with an early stage company who had acquired an asset that had been in the clinic previously, uh, but they didn't have a lot of the early data. And so, a lot, you know, when, when the asset got purchased, there, as you said, you know, when you pick up an asset, sometimes there's a lot of information and sometimes a lot of it has been lost. So in this case, a lot of it had been lost. And uh, their initial discussions with FDA, they said, you know, let's do a pre-IND meeting. It's, you've seen the molecule before, the IND was withdrawn, but now it's new. And uh, the company made a pitch for what I thought was a pretty skimpy IND package, given that there wasn't a lot uh, of information in writing, which is typically, you know, what you need to submit. You need to submit data. And if FDA was willing to work with the company. I mean, the, the, the molecule is a relatively safe one from the previous, you know, at least the, the data that they had. And so FDA was pretty flexible on, you can submit your IND, you know, you don't have to have made your clinical batch when you submit the IND. Um, you don't really need to send us much stability. Just give us a C of A before you dose your first, you know, certificate of analysis on the clinical batch before you dose your first patient. And, you know, we're good. I was shocked. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, so, you know, sometimes you get shocked uh, on, on a good side that, you know, FDA felt there was sufficient evidence and I had never seen that kind of package be accepted before, but, you know, sometimes it works. And, and I guess that goes to sometimes it's worth asking. Um, if you think it's safe, you know, of, of course, none of us want to do anything that we think isn't scientifically sound, 
But if you think it's reasonable and it's a reasonable risk and the safety is there, it doesn't hurt to ask. And so I learned that from that experience because, you know, previously I'd be like, no, here's an IND package. Here's what you have to submit. Don't even think about ask, you know, because you'll look bad. FDA will think you're silly. Well, you know, sometimes it's kind of you have to rethink it and it's worth asking. Yeah, right. And it, it goes up against too, and it, it, what we just talked about communications and transparency. And, you know, it sounds like it can be successful and working in a partnership with uh, agencies. And data sometimes helps too. We'll throw that in just in case. Yes. So. Okay, so Brian, Miranda, anything, anything else here? Otherwise, I have one last question before we go. I have one. And my question is, Judy, when is it time to plan? Is it ever too early? I mean, I know that sounds like a silly question, but we do get pushback from clients. Do we need all of this right now? All I want is X. Why do I need to have a plan? And and people look at that as upselling when clearly it's not because that plan can save you. But but at what point do you usually recommend to these small emerging companies when a plan like this is is appropriate? Day negative one. <laughs> I think you you know how do you 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 can't go from A to B unless you know the path. And and so if a company says. I need to, you know, dose the first patient in eight months, you know, and, and they don't have a plan. Well, okay, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, how are you going to get there? And so it's like anything in life, unless you have a plan, there's no guarantee you're going to get there. If you want to have a probability that you're going to succeed, you need a plan that shows how you're going to get there because that allows you to, to monitor and change and adapt along the way to assure that you're going to get there. So yeah, day negative one, the plan. I'm going to have to borrow that because that was really well put. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So last question. So I just some background here. I met Judy, I guess, maybe seven years ago. Out at, we were out at JP Morgan conference with Dan Torok, uh, one of our colleagues here. And I guess somehow we, we worked with you at a different company and we actually, we wound up at a Starbucks mm-hmm. somewhere in one of those towns out there. And, um, we started talking about what we do outside of this, you know, day job type of stuff. And I found that that Judy is an avid horse rider, has horses. And at that time, my wife had a horse and was riding the horse and I was paying for the horse, of course. And <laughs> I guess my last question is, you know, how are the horses? The horses are great. The horses are terrific. It, you know, I tell people it's like the cheapest therapist you'll ever have because when you, you get on that horse, everything else goes out of your head. You know, it's, you know, when people talk about focus and about, you know, living in the moment, you better live in the moment or it's not very safe. So <laughs> it's a, it's a great uh, lifestyle. I don't even call it a hobby. Um, and it, it keeps me sane. So with that, I'd like to thank you, Judy. Judy Magruder, uh, live from Mountain View, California today, early stage product expert, champion, horse owner, and uh, again, all around fantastic person. Thank you again, Judy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a good day. Okay, everybody, on our next episode, we'll be talking with Kyriakos Michalaris, also known as Q here at DSI, live from Brooklyn, New York. Mr. Michalaris is a drug product subject matter expert in oral drug product dosage forms, controlled, released tablets, perennials, inhaled products, transdermals, ointments, creams, liquids, and coated tablet formulations. He has over 20 years of experience supporting CMO selection, due diligence, process validation effort, protocol generation or review, and also man and plant, supervising many of our clients' production campaigns. He has expertise in technical and compliant validation strategies with all aspects of product validation and supports our clients' product transfer needs, including assisting in technical investigations. Q also holds an MBA in management and an undergraduate degree from Lehigh University. Prior to consulting for 10 years at DSI, 
He worked in commercial manufacturing for Teva and Johnson & Johnson, just to name a few. Please join us. He was also fluent in Greek. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.